This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with clinical psychologist Dr. Christopher Willard. Based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Dr. Willard is a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. He's given hundreds of workshops around the world on mindfulness, positive psychology, and building resilience. Dr. Willard is also the author of a whopping 19 books for parents, professionals, and children, including Growing Up Mindful, Essential Practices to Help Children, Teens, and Families Find Balance, Calm, and Resilience, and Alpha Breaths and Alpha Breaths 2, which is coming out soon, teaching young children the basics of mindfulness through playful breathing exercises. His latest book is called How We Grow Through What We Go Through, Self-Compassion Practices for Post-Traumatic Growth. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. Chris, welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here with you, Marianne. I'm going to get to some of the practices part of your book in a moment. But first, I think I need you to define a few of the terms so that people listening maybe understand what you mean. What exactly do you mean by trauma? Is it is it something that someone has experienced once in their life? Can it be an ongoing situation that they've experienced? What, it, what do you mean by trauma? This is such an important question. So thank you for asking it, because I, I think we're in a in a time where there's a lot of talk about trauma, and we mostly agree on what that means, but we're, we're still kind of in some ways still trying to define it. And, and I think it can actually be either or both of those things. It can be a, a single event, an acute, traumatic, horrifying event. It can also be something that is much longer lasting. You know, for example, this pandemic that people have been living through or, or, or systemic oppression that people have been living through or chronic health issues, things like that. And what, what they have in common is that they really reset and, and, and dysregulate our nervous system. I was actually talking to a, a, actually a Canadian friend of mine who was saying, you know, trauma is such a hard word. Can we maybe just start to call this just dysregulation of our nervous system based on some, you know, really, really bad and intense experiences? So I think that's a, a useful way to think about it from a, a scientific kind of perspective. We're going to talk more about trauma, but how would you define, because this is another term that you use a lot, self-compassion? What do we mean by that? Yeah, my, my friend and colleague, Chris Germer, has done a lot of work on self-compassion, studying it and, and researching it and practicing and teaching it. And he really talks about self-compassion as just trying to offer ourselves what we, what we need in a moment for soothing, like giving ourselves the same kind of kindness that we might extend to a friend or to, to someone that we love or someone who we've got a, a relatively easy, easy, easy relationship with when we see them suffering. And it often arises naturally. Right? When we see someone having a hard time, we want to reach out, say some gentle words, give them a hug, you know, offer them some, you know, some physical, emotional, and, and verbal comfort and support. And so how do we offer that to ourselves, especially in, in tough moments, which we forget to do? And uh, I think that's, you know, what, I, what I'm hoping with this book and with some other work I've done is, is to teach people how to be as kind to themselves as they be to others. You say in the book, no one is immune to trauma. And, you know, I'd like to ask you, how has mindful self-compassion helped you with maybe some of your own trauma? Yeah, you know, I, like many of us, had some some ups and downs in my life, some, you know, what we might think of as kind of capital T trauma as well as lowercase t traumas. And I got really interested in mindfulness when I was a, a young man. And I remember kind of discovering self-compassion actually through 
Chris Gurr, I remember him saying, I'm going to write a book about self-compassion. And I thought, that's a cool idea, but no one's ever going to buy that book. But I was certainly very wrong about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but because I think it sounds like such a hard sell and it, it sounds sort of so kind of flaky or, you know, I don't know. It's like, that sounds like, you know, how's this different than self-indulgence, right? And yet when I start to practice some of the, the techniques I just found it was it really accelerated almost my my own mindfulness practice and really helped me so much to to feel more comfortable in my own skin to really quiet down that inner critic that so many of us have that says there's something wrong with you or you're not good enough at this or you're bad at that or you're right and you know why'd you make that mistake you always do this and it, it started to quiet down that voice and start to so to kind of find and turn up the volume on a bit more of a compassionate voice that I found actually doesn't keep me from <laughs> performing less or being, you know, lazy or self-indulgent or, you know, all these things that we might worry about when we hear that term self-compassion. But it actually really helps me just feel more comfortable and confident with myself and even, I think, take take more risks and more healthy risks in my life. So it's been really powerful for me in terms of just feeling, yeah, feeling more comfortable in my own life and forgiving myself more often. And yet also still doesn't mean I'm not holding myself accountable either. Now, in your 20s, you you attended your first mindfulness retreat during mm-hmm. a particularly difficult time in your life. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I <laughs> I went off to college when I was a young man and kind of fell into all the you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll that one does at that age to maybe too much of an extreme. And I, I ended up leaving college or university, as, as you might call it up there, and taking two years off. And, you know, you might call that sort of finding yourself, we you might call that, you know, kind of getting your getting your shit together, or getting your act together. And I was really struggling with substance abuse. And at some point during that year, my parents actually dragged me onto this mindfulness retreat. And with Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a wonderful teacher who, who passed away last year after um, having a stroke a few years earlier. But I suddenly felt happier and I felt hopeful and I felt focused and I felt more creative and I felt more connected just with this, this these five days of trying to live more mindfully, being you know, not just sitting on a cushion, but walking mindfully and eating mindfully and having more mindful conversations, speaking and listening and and I, I suddenly felt just this greater sense of hope and this greater sense of, I don't know, I guess calm, maybe calm, but more just kind of settled and, and acceptance and contentment. And uh, that really was very transformative for me. And I felt like a lot of the, the challenges I've been having have been have been lifted and um, haven't, you know, used substances since then. Or, you know, I had one relapse maybe 20 years ago, but, you know, my life has been totally transformed. So. It's, it was really powerful for me. And I do want to say everyone's, everyone's mileage will vary. Right? I, I happen to have a really good experience at the right place in the right time. But it really started me on this path of wanting to share mindfulness with more people, particularly share mindfulness with young people, and also to, to help people through difficult and, and challenging times. And, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about mindfulness, of course, but he often really means compassion and self-compassion as well. And so that's just become a little bit more explicit in, in some of the writing and practices I've been doing in more recent years, like this new book. So in the book, you, you offer some practices, breathing, gratitude, some physical poses that we can do when we're, we're feeling emotionally unwell. 
or just a bit unsteady. You offer practices that really can help, you know, young kids, teens, adults, you know, cope with uh, trauma and unpleasant feelings. And I want to start with one that you start with, which I love, which is the attend and befriend Mm -hmm. practice. And I, I love this because it's probably one of the simplest things that you can do at any moment when you're feeling emotionally unsteady. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, so, so often when we're upset with the world or upset with ourselves, we can feel it in our bodies, right? I feel it, you know, my, my chest tightens up, my muscles clench, my breathing gets short and shallow, and I'm ready to, you know, fight or flee, but kind of fight or flee myself, you know, when I want to get out of my skin. And, and even just taking some time to just simply adjust our posture right? Sitting back, sitting upright, sitting not too tight, not too loose, right? Palms may be upward or even just palms, taking a moment to to offer ourselves like a, a bit of a hug with our arms, maybe like squeezing our shoulders or even just placing our hands over our heart. That that this just simple gesture, what's amazing is it actually it, it shifts the body's stress response. It shifts the nervous system. It starts to shut down that fight or flight response. It starts to activate what we might think of as these, these attend and befriend responses, being able to show up and be present for our own pain and suffering. And then to befriend and turn toward and console, console ourselves in the, in the pain or the suffering that we're experiencing in that moment. And it, and it truly does. It, it shuts down cortisol, the stress hormone, which allows oxytocin, which is like the warm and fuzzy love hormone to start to, to flow again, that, that allows us to trust other people that also allows us to trust ourselves, which I think for a lot of folks who've experienced difficulties in their lives, they don't know whether to trust themselves. So we learn how to trust ourselves. We start to see situations more clearly in our brains. We start to see when we're stressed out, for example, everything and everyone starts to look like a threat or threatening. We interpret it that way. We actually open up our brain to be able to see, okay, this may, person maybe is a trustworthy person. And this person maybe is not, right? Or this situation, you know, I, I can learn and grow from this. Or here is a way that I can, you know, find some healing, find some recovery. You know, whereas if I make that choice, maybe not so much. So it's, it's really just even simply shifting our posture. And again, it, it reminds me a little bit of, Again, like like with a friend, you know, Marianne, if a colleague came up to you, if your kids came up to you, if a if a friend came up to you, you know, having made a mistake or something, right? You might just, you know, speak in a in a kind voice. You might just lean your arm around them and, and pull them in, you know, around around the shoulder, give them a pat on the back or a hug, even. And that's so consoling, right? And that that really does change their nervous system, and you're you're co-regulating your nervous system with theirs, and you're both calming down and connecting. We can do that even without a friend when we do some of these even just simple gestures. So it's it's very powerful. And the and again, you know, as I always like to say, the research backs this up because I just find it's so cool how we can see actually the changes in the brain and the body, just even simply making you know, different kinds of gestures and how we hold our body. I mean, we're so often taught to believe that we have to look outwardly. Mm. for support. That yeah. we have someone else has to be there to help us. But you know, that isn't always possible. Right. And I, I love how this sort of gives you control over managing your own emotions, supporting yourself. You, it's, just, it's just something you do for yourself. And it's such a small thing, but with such a huge reach. Yeah. 
I want to talk about breath and breathing because mm-hmm. obviously that's a big part of mindfulness and, you know, it has a huge impact on our, our general well-being, you know, our physical health, our emotional health. And you talk in the book about four ways of regulating your breath. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what those are? I don't remember what I said. In the book. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to find it? <laughs> well, I think there's, there's, you know, I think there's, there's some misconceptions around mindfulness and breathing. And, and I do think there's, there's like, mindful breathing, which is really just watching our breath, right? Which can be something to focus on that, that allows us to focus on something happening in the present. And then there's also really deliberate, uh, regulated breathing, intentional breathing, we might call it. And, and that's when we really start to shift our breath in a specific way. And for folks who maybe experience some trauma and just focusing on their breath can be a little triggering or a little difficult for them for whatever reason, when we deliberately regulate our breath, that actually really changes what our nervous system is doing. Now, Marianne, you've probably been in traffic or been in, you know, and of course, you've never been in a conflict with your kids or anybody else. Never, never. Right? But, but, I'm but a perfect we're, parent. We're, we're, <laughs> right? When we're upset, right, we can, we can, you know, or actually you can watch your kids when they're upset or frustrated, right? Their breath right, gets all kind of short and shallow. When we're calm or when the people around us are calm, it's kind of slow and even. And you can actually, so we know that right, our, our mood changes our breath. But what's cool is actually our breath can change our mood and change how we feel when we breathe in deliberate and intentional ways. And so we can actually, some researchers did this experiment where they actually had people kind of measure the rate and rhythm of their breath when they were happy and sad and angry and you know different kinds of moods. And then they had them breathe in that way later and they actually changed how they felt. They could make themselves angry by breathing like they were angry. They can make themselves calm by breathing like they were calm, right? So you, you may want to experiment with this a little bit on your own, but, but fundamentally when we're overwhelmed with emotion, what we want to do for optimal focus in the brain and, and calm in the body and activating what we call the, the, the social nervous system, really, where we're able to trust other people and build relationships is slow our breath down to about five or six breaths in a minute. And we want to breathe deeply and slowly. And so what I, what I talk about in the book is this idea of hitting the reset button. Actually, I used to work in tech. And if anyone's ever called their local cable company or called you know, Apple tech support or whatever, you know, what's the first thing they always tell you to do? Restart your computer. And you know, guess what? It fixes things 99% of the time. And you can reset your own nervous system by hitting the reset button in your body and your nervous system. And it's, I like to say, it's located in the bottom of your lungs. So you have to breathe deeply and slowly to hit that reset button in your lungs. And what we, what we know is we have different nerve endings in the top of our lungs than in the bottom of our lungs. And so if you breathe again, short and shallow, you, you can, I mean, don't try this, but you could give yourself a panic attack if, if you wanted to, right? Or you could get yourself pumped up for, for something also. If you breathe lower and slower and deeper, you have different nerve endings there. The oxygen hits those nerve endings and it tells your body to relax. It tells your brain to focus for the long term and to, to see things clearly. And it, it tells you that you can, you, can, you can trust other people and form trusting relationships. So, off of what I'll suggest, if you want to do this along with me, anyone listening too, you can, you can just start by just you know, let yourself breathe and then maybe gently beginning to just, just stretching out that exhale. 
just, just stretch your breath. Just stretch the exhale out a little bit. That's getting nice. <laughs> That's getting maybe a little bit longer than the in-breath. And then what's what starts to happen, right, is you might you might notice, right, your body is starting to calm down. Your mind is starting to focus a little bit, right? You are going to interpret, you know, someone cutting you off in traffic or something. Maybe they're not trying to, like, they're not just a jerk, right? Maybe they're rushing their sick mom to the hospital, right? We start to see people and interpret their, you know, their motivations, you know, maybe more accurately or in a little bit more trusting ways. So just regulating our breath. And, and, and again, you can, you can also count, you can breathe into seven and out to 11. You can just let out some longer sighs. Like these can be very helpful. And what's interesting is that this five or six breaths in a minute, it's actually the rhythm that we end up with. If we do certain kinds of chanting that you might find in, in, in Asian religions, it's, it's the same as, you know, certain other, other prayers in, in Catholicism and in Judaism, it's the same rate and rhythm of, you know, all kinds of things that we do that calm us down. That's like, oh, that, you know, we can do that on purpose without any spirituality behind it, or, 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 you know, we can do it in a, in a more spiritual way, but they all have the same effect of calming us down and opening us up. So that really blew me away when I started to learn that about just how powerful breathing can be. And I know it's like, everyone's like, take a deep breath, right? But it, but it really does work. I swear it really does work. So, <laughs> yeah. I love how you say that with breathing, you're the one who's in control. Mm-hmm. Because I think what, what happens is so many of us, when our emotions take over, which happens to everybody, right? Whether it's because someone's pushing our buttons or because we're in traffic or because something's going on at work or because we have anxiety or depression or trauma or something else that we're you know, maybe struggling with that's very real, right? It, we feel so out of control and that feels so awful to us as humans. And for, particularly for folks with, with ex, who've experienced trauma, trauma arises when we feel out of control, Right. And so finding a way to take some control back or, or feel like empowered in our own lives, empowered in our own bodies, that I can make myself feel a little bit different in a way that's healthy, right? By, by even just shifting my breath or shifting the way I hold my body, that that can feel so empowering. Again, especially if you've experienced trauma and felt out of control, it's like what a relief. And on so many levels right now, starting to feel feel a bit more in control of your own life. Um, and it's not like we can control every emotion, <laughs> right? But that we have a little more influence maybe over how we respond and how we react to, to challenging circumstances that, that are going to trigger us again. Another practice that you mentioned in the book that can help with post-traumatic growth is a gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the fact that you're actually in a, in a social media group where you send each other messages of <laughs> gratitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do, I think, you know, and I want to be cautious when I talk about gratitude because I, you know, one one term that I started hearing a lot in the pandemic was um, this idea of toxic positivity, which is pretending everything's great when it's not, <laughs> and that that can put so much pressure on people. Or I need to be feeling better, even though things are falling apart. I want to just be really clear that gratitude is not pretending things are good when they're not, or finding a silver lining in every difficult or awful situation because there are some situations that are truly just objectively awful. But but where gratitude can be helpful is that when things are difficult, like say this pandemic, right, it's important that we look for what's actually working. Right? Okay, maybe this 
uh, you know, I don't know, I was, I was going to say Zoom is working because I think none of us like Zoom, right? But, um, you know, but maybe this treatment is working or that is working or we are, you know, still connecting with, with colleagues and friends in this way or that way or, you know, looking at our own health issues or looking at our own mental health issues and seeing, oh, this is getting better. We need to take time to look at what's going well, but we can grow that and not just try to get rid of all the stuff that's not going well. We need to expand the good, not just you know, get rid of the bad. And with gratitude, there's so many ways to, to practice. I do with friends, you know, because social media also is so negative. But we, we started, started out texting each other, and then it turned into actually a little Facebook group where we just share a few things every couple of days on like what's going well in our lives. And it can be, you know, like I had a good cup of coffee. I had a fun conversation. It, the, the sun was shining today. It, it, you know, or it could be like got a big promotion at work or, you know, had a baby. Right? We've actually been doing this now for probably 15 years. These, these friends, some have moved, you know, to Thailand and to Sweden and to across the country. And it, it's a really nice way to stay connected as, as humans, unfortunately, we're built in with what's called the negativity bias, which is we sort of interpret things negatively and stress makes that worse. And mental health makes that worse. Trauma makes that worse. So being deliberate around connecting around the positive is, is really important that we do that to shift some of our conversation. And again, it's not like we don't talk about the awful things or the challenges also, but to spend some of our days talking about the positive is important because it actually helps us to see more clearly. We generally take on about four times as much negative as positive information. So to see things accurately, we actually need to look deliberately for the positive sometimes. With gratitude, again, people seem to think that, you know, you have to be grateful for the big things, but really you get so much benefit when you're just grateful for the little things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't rain or... My right. dog pooped when I needed him to poop. I mean, these are these are things that make me feel grateful. <laughs> they would make the day run smoothly. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It took that Han used to talk about when you have a toothache, all you notice is your toothache, right? As soon as the toothache's gone, you don't think, oh yeah, I don't have a toothache. Like, isn't it nice to not have a toothache? <laughs> and I, I love that this message of inverting it and being like, yeah, it just was the absence of stuff going badly is enough or just sometimes sometimes that's all you've got in a day but it's something right it's still it actually still makes you feel better yeah yeah for sure i've heard you say and and you talk about in the book that mindfulness and compassion are contagious how does that happen this i think is so cool and I, i started stumbling into some of the compassion research many years ago and then and then more the mindfulness stuff but around what researchers call emotional contagions. Um, and this another kind of fancy sounding term is interpersonal neurobiology and mirror neurons, but I don't even get into that. It just sounds fancy. But basically our emotions are contagious. And some of our most contagious emotions are unfortunately stress and anxiety, which you probably felt in, you know, whenever in the office is stressed, it really ripples around or someone, you know, comes home and the family stressed out and it, you know, ripples around the family, that kind of thing. But what's cool also is that mindfulness and and a well-regulated nervous system is also contagious. So that like parents who practice mindfulness, the kids are happier, communicating better. There's fewer conflicts, things like that. Um, In the workplace, as bosses practice mindfulness, employees tend to be happier and a little bit more loyal. You know, poor university students are always getting experimented on, but this 
this one in England who was asking a, a college student, the university student, to practice mindfulness for a week on and then a week off. And they talked to that person's like their roommates, their even their family members and their other friends. The week that that person was meditating, the roommates and the friends and the, the girlfriends and even sometimes the family back home was actually happier those weeks than the weeks that they weren't, that their like friend or roommate wasn't practicing. So it's actually, it's, it's amazing the way we act or, you know, you know, pandemic, oh my gosh, you know, all stuck, you know, quarantining together. But again, like when one, you know, person in the couple is practicing, the other person in the couple says, oh, I'm happier with the relationship lately. We're getting along better. We're having fewer conflicts. We compromise more. So it's, it's amazing the way mindfulness is, is contagious. And then the generosity and compassion and kindness are too. This, these researchers, um, they're uh, James Fowler and Nick Christiakis. They're actually public health people. And they look at the ways networks of people uh, change behavior, right? Like if one person in your group of friends loses five pounds, actually, then, you know, more of your friends are likely to. Or if one person quits smoking, then actually two degrees of separation away, like someone else is likely to quit smoking. It's, it's really fascinating, but they're looking at emotions and behaviors around positive emotions and behaviors. And they found that like three degrees of separation away even just witnessing an act of kindness, like Marianne, maybe you, you know, bring muffins to people in the office one day, right? You know, and someone sees that, like they're more likely to then hold the elevator door for someone leaving the building. And they're more likely to then let someone, you know, out of the parking lot before them. And they're more likely to then, you know, stop and buy flowers for their partner on the, on the drive home. Like it's, it's, it's amazing. They measured this out, like kindness, three degrees of separation. And that, that just blew my, I was like, this is so cool. Like, so It's incredible. It's, yeah. And, and that example that you use a lot in your work about, you know, maybe just letting someone cut in front of you in traffic yeah. actually has such a ripple effect that it's worth just doing that once in a while, even yeah. when you don't initially feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that we feel better, right. When we do kind and generous things, actually, Richie Davidson, who studies all this kind of mindfulness and compassion stuff, you know, if, if you ask him, he's at the University of Wisconsin, like, what's the best thing to do to feel happy? He says, the best way to activate positive emotion circuits in the brain is through acts of kindness and generosity. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. And we, you get more, you know, by giving away $5 and receiving $5 when they throw people into MRI machines. Like, it's just, it's really, it's really cool. And I, I also want to say, folks listening, you know, you're probably do gooder people, you know, so please have boundaries around how you, how generous you are. Don't burn yourself out. Don't give away, you know, every cent of your salary if you've got mouths to feed at home. But, but there is that, you know, never suppress a generous impulse can be, can be good advice to follow. And so pushing yourself to be generous and kind and compassionate like that, it's, it's rare that we regret that. You have a degree in psychology. You teach at an Ivy League medical school. How have you been able to balance the more, say, traditional approaches of therapy with things like mindful, self-compassion, and positive psychology? Has traditional medicine become more open to these? Yeah. I mean, you know, how I, I joined Harvard was through their Center for Mindfulness and Compassion. I mean, like, by by having a few colleagues there and and they were inviting me in to help start this center. And 
you know, Oxford has a mindfulness center, you know, I mean, so many leading universities where they are practicing and teaching, where they are doing research, where they're throwing undergrads into MRI machines, (laughs) where they are doing blood draws, where they are really seeing what's happening. And not just in terms of like, you know, this is good for people, right? But, but, you know, at, at, at HMS, for example, it's like, how do we also start to integrate this now into the medical school curriculum? How can we teach mindfulness and compassion to medical students, to doctors, to people that are practicing so that they are, you know, more, more compassionate, which we want doctors to be, but also so that they are more, more attentive, so that they are more aware, so that they are also more balanced. I was talking to a really interesting doctor in, in North Carolina who was talking about like doing rounds, you know, when he's kind of going around like room to room in the, in the emergency room and, and just doing a little mindfulness practice between visiting patients. And we kind of, the metaphor we came up with was, you know, he's like, you know, just like you, know, you put on the Purell and disinfect between people, you know, do you do a little mindfulness practice and you go into the room with fresh eyes, with an open heart for this next suffering person and what a beautiful metaphor, you know, I, I think for, you know, what, what doctors and other medical folks can be doing. And especially we know these past few years have been so challenging and taxing on our, our frontline workers and, and doctors and nurses and other folks in that profession. So it was, that was a really fun conversation, but yeah, it's amazing just seeing this, you know, moving into professional sports, moving and, you know, listening to the Olympics last, you know, when they were on last and, you know, American Olympic athletes talking about mindfulness. And um, uh, I was in Argentina recently and, you know, Leo, Leo Messi, the soccer player got bored in the pandemic and sort of practicing mindfulness. Like it's just, it's just sort of taking off so many places. It's so, so interesting to me. I mean, there was a time when it was considered a bit woohoo and a bit oh, yeah. dippy, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you, is there a moment or maybe not a moment, but like, have you seen things shift since you started practicing? Because if you were practicing, started practicing this in your twenties, and now we won't say how old you are, but you know, it's been a little bit of time. A lot has happened in the past 20 years. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, this was woohoo stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what what I've seen is this, you know, the, the mainstreaming of this. And I, I think as we get more busy as a society and, you know, smartphones and blah, 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 and going in 20 different directions and, and climate change and racism and political instability, right? People are like, I need something. I need something that's the opposite of busyness. That's the opposite of multitasking. And then when the science started to come out and people saw pictures of the differences in the shape and structure of people's brains when they've been practicing mindfulness, I think that really started to, to turn heads and people start to think, you know, that was maybe, I don't know, 2004, 2005, that Sarah Lazar did a, a study um, at Harvard Medical School scanning the brains of people and seeing like, oh, there's new gray matter when people are practicing mindfulness. And I think, you know, the, the skeptics started to fade, the medical community started to embrace it. You know, people, you know, who were, you know, otherwise skeptical, science-minded people could see, oh my gosh, like, look at that. And, and it, it started to really catch on in a different way too. And, and that's because also the brain is how we, you know, that's a metaphor for our time. Like if, if something's neuroscience, neuroscientifically true, then it must be true. Just like, you know, a hundred years ago, if it was spiritually true, then it, mu- and it must be true. But we believe now in, in the brain, maybe too much, um, <laughs> but people will believe it if they see a brain scan. So... So much of your work has been with 
teens and kids, parents, how have you seen mindful self-compassion help support uh, children and families? Yeah, I, you know, I, I work with families, I work with schools, and, you know, I think it's a way that teaches resilience in the long term. Just again, that, you know, you, you learn how to regulate your breath, you can regulate your body, you can regulate your nervous system, you can regulate your attention and your impulses and your, your emotions as well. And, and so it's just so empowering. And so watching kids discover that and have fun with something like the goofy alpha breaths or watching teens who are so stressed out, um, certainly in the US and Canada, teens are actually the most stressed out age group in, in our two countries that, you know, they're learning something that's like, oh, this is helping me feel less stressed out. It's helping me feel better even for a few moments at a time and more hopeful. And I hope what that can lead to is more resilience because I think those of us that work with or care about or live with teenagers or kids, right, we see this crisis in mental health where more kids are depressed, more kids are anxious, more kids are, are self-harming, more kids are, are getting into to trouble and that quote-unquote failure to launch than, than we've seen a lot and more like you're in my generation. Although I was close to being that failure to launch and then I kind of figured it out. But that's kind of what drove me, you know, really to, to trying to do work with young people too. Well, and, and and you figured it out in part because of mindfulness, exactly. right? So yeah. Yeah. how does mindfulness play a role in, in your, your own day-to-day life as a father of two young children? Yeah, in different ways. You know, it used to be I'd like sit on my cushion most days and I had kids and that didn't happen or when my son was born and then I was starting to get back to sitting on my cushion and then my daughter was born and that went out the window and you know, one of the things, you know, I mean, some ways about like gratitude and and something being difficult, the pandemic allowed us to slow down and practice more. The pandemic allowed us to practice gratitude every night. We do a little practice called roses and thorns, where we talk about the roses and the best parts of our day, and maybe a thorn, something that wasn't so great from the day, and then a bud that we look forward to tomorrow. And, and that's, in some ways only happened because of the pandemic. I was, I was home every night for, for bedtime and dinner. So I just come up from the basement. And so that became a, a practice that we do together. My, you know, using this when I'm watching my son get a little frustrated with reading or thinking about it in terms of staying focused in soccer. And I don't push it too hard because, you know, kids will always rebel a little bit. And I, I, <laughs> this story I've been sharing more recently. A couple months ago, my son was, he was, he was upset at bedtime and he asked for meditation. I was like, oh yeah, I'm like such a great dad and so mindful. And I, I led him through this meditation and he was like really into it. And then a few nights later, my daughter was having a hard time sleeping and, and the two of them share a room. And I was like walking by and I was listening and my son is guiding my daughter in a meditation. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is like the best, you know? And so like there's days when that happens. And then like literally two days after that, like my son, my wife and I, we had a new kids book come out and my son like whacked my daughter in the head with our mindfulness book. So it's, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen, but like they're absorbing it on some level, I guess. Right. So <laughs> kids will be kids. They, they are going to whack each other with the mindfulness <laughs> hard book. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I love that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, you touched on this, this these are these are difficult times um, <laughs> that everybody is having for so many different reasons right now. What keeps you personally feeling hopeful and optimistic? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like looking for what's going well, like seeing mindfulness grow, seeing just, you know, despite the fact that there's this explosion of mental health challenges with kids, that there's also been such a dismantling certainly in North America, but what I'm seeing is really worldwide of the stigma associated with mental health, with trauma, with depression, with anxiety, that people are opening up in ways that they never have before. Social media has accelerated this in some ways, in ways that's not great, but has also helped people just be open about talking about these challenges. And that that gives me hope with how active, especially young people are in terms of whether it's reducing violence or working on climate change or or working on on mental health um, solutions for themselves and their and their peers that I I find like really really inspiring really hopeful. There's a quote at, sort of towards the end of your book: "How we grow through what we go through." Self compassion practices for post traumatic growth. It's being released this fall. Just as a reminder to people listening, you say no amount of emotional or spiritual work makes life painless, but can give but it can give us strength, presence, and equanimity through hard times. I love that. Yeah, I love that too. So it's like I read something, read something. I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah. Chris, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been a real pleasure. I look forward to connecting again soon. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.